This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. All right, this evening we are going to be going back again to Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, we'll read a few verses together. I I honestly really did not intend uh, to be as long in this book as we have. The idea initially was just to pick out, uh, delve in here and there and pick out, but there's just so much in it that it's hard to know what to leave out anymore. So we've kind of just working our way through. I think this is maybe part seven or something, and uh, we have a little bit to go yet, but... Obviously, Easter next Sunday, we'll not be looking at it uh, for obvious reasons. We'll be concentrating on Easter message. So Ephesians chapter 4 and reading from verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who ascended, sorry, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ or the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effect of working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This morning we finished at verse 9 and we spoke about Christ descending to the lower lower parts of the earth and then ascending uh, to far above the heavens and tonight and leading captivity captive. And tonight, I don't want to, uh, to go back over that again. We dealt with that this morning. Uh, this evening, I want to focus really more on the gifts that Christ gave uh, to the church that are mentioned here. But before we even do that, uh, let me give you several reasons why Christ ascended. What was the purpose for his ascension? Why is he where he is today. Now let me just read a little bit here from Luke chapter 24. And towards the end of the the chapter, verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany, that's his disciples, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. There are five major events, really, in the life of Christ. His virgin birth, his death on the cross for our sins, 
his resurrection for our justification, his ascension into glory, and of course, his second return back to earth again. And it really is the fourth one I want to focus on tonight, just for a few moments before we get to those gifts, his ascension into glory. It must have been a huge shock to those disciples in that day when they walked up the Mount of Olives. And little did they know at that point that after Jesus had spoken to them for a little while, that suddenly, suddenly, right before their very eyes, he began to lift up in a great cloud of glory, right up into the heavens. And as he did that, they stood there just transfixed, gobsmacked, as we would say, not knowing what to do or to say anything. And they were so transfixed with that that two angels had to come and shake them out of it and say, why are you standing there? You know, why are you looking up? Don't you know that the same Jesus who went up is going to come in like manner? And so Acts 1, 9, 11 says, Now when they had spoken these things, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from among you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So what were the reasons for him going back into heaven again? Well, let me give you just a few. First of all, that he may prepare his kingdom on earth for his return. It was always ever his intention to return, but he wanted to prepare his kingdom on earth for his return. Now, the kingdom of God is now is, but not yet. Now is, but not yet. In other words, the kingdom of God on earth is an invisible kingdom. It's within us. It's within his church. And we're to act out that kingdom to those around us. But he will come to this earth and set up a physical, literal kingdom, at least for a thousand years. And so it now is, but it's not yet. There's something in reserve still to come. And so part of the reason why these gifts were given unto the church, which we'll talk about in a moment, was to prepare us in his kingdom on earth so that we're fit and ready and able for spiritual warfare against our spiritual enemies, of which there are many, and also to prepare Christ's bride for his coming that we are prepared and his bride, his church is prepared for his second coming. So first of all, that he may prepare his kingdom on earth for his return. Secondly, that he may prepare a place for us in heaven. John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so there's a place for us in Philippians 3.20. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also wait eagerly for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why in Colossians 3 and 2, he says, Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. It, it is a fact that the, the tiniest, the most infinitesimal part of our whole existence 
is actually going to be on earth. In comparison to all of eternity, it literally is just a blink. That's why the Bible says that our life is a breath, literally just a breath in comparison to eternity. You go out in a frosty morning and you, that breath has just dissipated and just in a moment's time, isn't it? Well, that's what our life on earth is like. It may seem long when you're, you know, when you're 18 or 20 and you think, oh, oh, that old boy up there is 70 and, you know, he's a dinosaur. And, but let me tell you, if you, if you live long enough, if you live to my age, let me tell you, it's then like zip. You look back and say, where did those years go? It's so fast. And so he's preparing a place for us for all eternity. And thirdly, that we might walk by faith and not by sight. 1 Corinthians 4.18, why we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. So we walk by faith and not by sight. Think of this just for a moment regarding Jesus' disciples. Until Jesus came along, all of their religion, their Judaism, all of it was by sight. You know, they had their temple, they had their synagogue, they had their priests, they had their sacrifices, they had their holy days, they had their feast days, they had their washings, their bathings, their rituals, all of that, they could see it, they could touch it, they could feed it. It was all by sight. But whenever Christ came, he fulfilled the law. And he was the fulfillment of all of those feasts and all of those holy days and all of those rituals that they went through. He was the fulfillment of all of that. All of that spoke of him who was to come. So when he came, he fulfilled all of that. That's why that was no longer to be part of the disciples' lives because all that was pointing to him. Now he's here. They don't need that anymore. And so now... For the next three and a half years, roughly, now they have him physically with them. And they can see him. They can hear his audible voice. They can reach out. They can touch him. They ate with him. And so for three and a half years, even though they're no longer having to go through all those Old Testament rituals under the Judaistic law, but they're still walking by sight because they have the master with them. They didn't need much faith because he was right there. Everything they ever needed, everything they needed to know, he was right there. They could just talk to him the way we can talk to each other. But then there's coming the point, and here it is. They're standing in the Mount of Olives. He's been resurrected. He's been appearing for a number of times to them personally. But now he takes them to the Mount of Olives. And as they stand there, he lifts up his hands. And suddenly he's gone. Physically, materially, he's gone. So from that point on, they're going to have to walk by faith, not by sight. They're not going to have him physically with them anymore. And that was a good thing. In fact, he told them beforehand, it's a good thing that I'm going. It's to your advantage that I go. Because when I go, I'm going to send one just like me, only he'll be the Holy Spirit, and he'll not just be with you, he'll be in you. And that's exactly where we are today.
walking by faith, not by sight. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. That's us. We're blessed. He said, it would be lovely if we had been there and seen Jesus. Of course it would have been. That would have been lovely. But the disciples had him for three and a half years. And what did they do at the end of the three and a half years when he was being tried? They ran. They denied him. They were frightened. I mean, they totally just went to pieces. So all of that walking by sight didn't do them much good, did it? But whenever they began to walk by faith instead of sight, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost, they were different people. Suddenly they were courageous and brave and bold and testified and witnessed and went everywhere preaching the gospel. Hmm. And then fourthly, that he might be our great interceding high priest. Hebrews 7 and 9 tells us that. Our great interceding high priest. He was the only one who could be, who could perfectly intercede for us because he was perfectly human and he was perfectly God at the same time. So he could, he could feel the heart of God, but he could feel us as human beings. He was touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. And so he could take the hand of God and he could take the hand of man and he could reconcile man unto God again because he himself was the God-man. And the wonderful thing about all of it, and I've told you a million times, is that he never divested himself of that human body. He always, forever, 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 will be Jesus Christ, the man, the son of God, the son of man. And he has that human body even to this day. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He identifies fully with us forever. And then fifthly, that he might give gifts unto men. Verses 11 and 12, and he gave himself, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. Now these five gifts that he gave are often called the five-fold ministry gifts. <coughs> or sometimes they're called the grace gifts because we're not talking here about natural ability. Everybody is born with natural abilities and God can use those natural abilities. John Calvin called that common grace. But these grace gifts are something that, it's not something we possessed. It's something that God has put within these fivefold ministries that God has given as a gift. And it's not just the ability as the gift, it's the person who is the gift to the body of Christ. Are you still with me? And so these are grace gifts are often called ascension gifts, the five ascension gifts, because Jesus gave them, they came when he ascended. And so there are actually seven gifts also mentioned in Romans 12, verses 6 and 8. And then there's the nine full gifts of the Spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. But these five gifts, these are people that God has given to the church to build the church up, to prepare the church for his return and to cause the church to be to minister 
not behind a pulpit necessarily, but to minister where you are. And so let's look here at these five that are listed here. And what are they for? For the perfecting or the maturing of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying and the building up of the body of Christ. And what is the end result of all this? To bring the church into the unity of the faith unto the knowledge of the Son of God. To bring the church unto a perfect, mature man. My job as one of these five full ministry gifts is to try to mature you, to try to get you to grow up spiritually in Christ. That's part of my job. To bring the church onto the measure of the stature of Christ. In other words, that we become more Christ-like in word and in deed. Number four, that we be no more tossed about to and fro with every wind of doctrine. That's why it's important that you know the gospel and the truths of the doctrine of God's word because there's a ton of it out there that's false. And if you don't know the truth, when the false comes, if you're not careful, you can get taken in by it. It may look good and sound good and feel good, but if it's not in this book and it's not as it's written in this book, then you need to know that. And fifthly, that the Lord will be able to present to himself a glorious church, a bride for himself, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So it's a mammoth task, isn't it? It's a big job. The five-fold ministry has got a mammoth job to try to help the church to be what Christ wants the church to be. Now, when it comes to these five ascension gift ministries, there are those who say, that only three are valid today. That as far as the apostolic ministry is concerned, the prophetic ministry is concerned, that was for then back there. And whenever the last apostle died, which was John, and whenever the full canon of Scripture was collated and completed, then there was no more need for an apostle or for a prophet. We only need today the evangelist and the pastor and the teacher. Now, I don't believe that for one second. Because these five gifts were given when Christ went back to heaven. And what were they given for? For the unity of the faith until we become a perfect, mature man. And we haven't arrived there yet. <laughs> we haven't arrived. There's a lot of schism within the body of Christ. We haven't arrived yet. It's not fully unified and it's not matured yet and it's not perfect yet. So we need all five. Of course, it is true, and we have to acknowledge this, that, that no apostle today could be like the original 12 apostles. The original 12 apostles were unique, and they will have their names written in the foundations of the New Jerusalem. So no present-day apostle is going to ever have that. No present apostle is ever in the mode of any of those original apostles. And the apostle Paul, who came along after them, who in his own words says he was one like one born out of due season, he is unique. All those apostles that Christ had, those 12, all met with him personally, walked with him personally. The apostle Paul, you remember he met Christ on the road to Damascus? and how he was completely changed. And for the next three years, 
spent in the Arabian desert communicating with Christ on a personal level to give us two-thirds of the New Testament. That's unique. No one is ever going to be the Apostle Paul. But having said that, certainly there are apostles. There are 80 references in the New Testament to apostles. And among these 80 references, about 15 of them were designated the term apostle. These are named after Christ's ascension. So leaving out the 12, uh, leaving out Paul, among them we have Matthias, uh, James the Lord's brother, Barnabas, Paulus, Andronicus, Junia, Epaphroditus, Titus, Timothy, Judas, Silas, Erastus, Tychicus, and two that are unnamed in 2 Corinthians 8.23. And so there were those after the other apostles and after Paul who were named as, designated as apostles. So, what is an apostle? 1 Corinthians 12.28, God has said in the church, firstly, apostles. The Greek word apostolos, from which we get apostle, simply means one who is sent forth. Fire says a delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. Smith's Dictionary, one sent forth. So altogether that simply means a sent one, an ambassador, one who is sent forth, one commissioned and authorized by another to represent another and his will and his purposes. The sent one is the one, the sent one is one with the one who sent him. <laughs> That's a tongue twister, isn't it? The sent one is one with the one who sent him. So let me give you just a few quick bullet points But an apostle. Apostle will be a person of character. He will be Christ-like. You see, you can take on these titles, but taking on a title doesn't necessarily make you what the title means. There's qualifications to carry these titles. Apostle will have a servant's heart. Apostle will have spiritual authority, but he will not be a dictator. An apostle will be a humble man. Apostle will be a model leader. Apostle will be a spiritual father. An apostle will be one who plants and founds churches or at least establishes them in the faith before moving on. The apostle Paul, for example, uh, generally apostles can, can minister in all the fivefold ministry. Take the apostle Paul, for example. He could go into an area as an evangelist, a missionary evangelist. He could win people to Christ. Then he could teach them and pastor them and be a prophet unto them and raise up a church, establish that church, set it in order and set people over that church and then move on and do it all over again somewhere else. And that's basically what he did in his ministry. That's an apostolic ministry. An apostle is a preacher and a teacher of God's word. An apostle will serve sacrificially to build up Christ's church. Apostle Paul, at times when he could not get support, he made tents to sell to get himself some food. But he's willing to do that for Christ's church. 
An apostle is noted for wisdom and maturity. An apostle, although a founder of local churches, still submits himself to a local church. He's not a loose cannon. There's lots of loose cannons out there who will not submit to anybody for any reason. And that's not scriptural. So in a nutshell, and we're not going to labor these because you could spend a long time in each one of them. In a nutshell, that's an apostle. But what about the prophet? Well, the nature of prophecy, as I've told you before, is forth-telling and foretelling. Forth-telling is speaking out. Foretelling is seeing out there. That's why sometimes a prophet's called a seer, S-E-E-R, he sees things. Foretelling is basically preaching the mind of God for the particular times we're living in. A prophet recognizes the times that we're living in and will address those times, will speak into those times, exhorting, reproving, building up, comforting. Foretelling is obviously predicting. So speak in God's mind for the future, about the future. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 10, it speaks of a gift of prophecy as one of the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. However, somebody could prophesy according to 1 Corinthians 12 as one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but not be a prophet, not stand in the office of a prophet. Like somebody could lead somebody to Christ, but wouldn't stand in the office of an evangelist. Are you still with me? The prophet that's spoken of here in Ephesians 4, the sentient gift ministry, is one who stands in the office of a prophet and whose prophetic gift defines their ministry. It flows quite naturally from them. Their gift brings three things. It brings exhortation, which is stirring up to encourage us to follow Christ. It's edification. It's a building up to build up our spiritual man. And it's comfort, it's a binding up to bring comfort. It edifies and it builds up. It doesn't tear down unless it's tearing down the powers of darkness. I've said this before. A priest, or you can put in brackets a pastor, a priest is the one who stands before God on behalf of the people, but a prophet stands before people on behalf of God. Thus saith the Lord, speaking the heart of God at that moment. However, it's important to recognize the difference between an Old Testament prophet and a New Testament prophet. The Old Testament prophets, the people like Moses or Samuel or Elijah or Elisha, they were often used to direct and guide men's lives because the Holy Spirit was not given generally to every believer in the Old Testament. From time to time, the Holy Spirit came upon people and they did amazing things. But in the New Testament, every believer has got the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit of Christ, we're none of his. And so, we are who we are, the sons of God, we are led by the Spirit of God. Because sometimes people go around looking for prophets to guide their lives. You tell me what God wants for my life. 
No, you've got the Holy Spirit to tell you that. The prophet can confirm that for you. The ministry of the prophet can confirm what God's already dealing with you about. Here's the way I've done this over the years, and I've got lots of prophecies over the, lots of them. If it didn't confirm anything to me, I did nothing about it. I waited, and if it was genuine, then the Lord would confirm it again in the mouth of two or three witnesses that every word be established. I didn't just rush out and do something because somebody told me. I remember one time I was in a meeting, and uh, this guy called me up. I knew the pastor when I felt bad for the pastor. He called me up and he says, uh, Brother, he says, uh, the Lord's just told me that you're thinking of quitting the ministry. I'm thinking, no. What? What? <laughs> Am I hearing right? And then he tried to encourage me, you see. So when I went back to my seat, I didn't want to cause a stir. I went back to my seat. The pastor gave me, he says, David. He said, I don't think I was right. I says, no, it definitely wasn't right. <laughs> for sure it was not right. I'm not thinking of quitting the ministry at all. But if I was a weak Christian, if I had just come into ministry and I thought, oh dear, what's going on? You know, so you need to be careful of what you hear and test it. Everything's testable. Every prophetic word needs to be tested. Just the same as every word preached needs to be tested. The Bereans searched the word daily to see that these things be so. So when I'm preaching to you, go back and read your Bibles and test it. Look at it in case I'm preaching heresy. If you don't know your Bible, you might know it's preaching heresy. But I trust that you do know. You've been coming here long enough. You know the difference, don't you? But anyway. So a prophet is not there to be your personal seer or personal guide for your spiritual life. You have the Holy Spirit to do that for you. But he can confirm, or she can confirm, and encourage you and strengthen you. And it's lovely when you do get a confirmation from somebody who knows nothing what you were thinking or what you know or what you were told or how you were being led, and it just confirms something in your heart, and that's a wonderful gift. And that's needed today. Apostle, the prophet, is needed in the church today. It has not been discontinued since the beginning of the New Testament church. As much as people would tell you it has, it hasn't. Still in the book, still there. It's throughout the New Testament. What about the evangelist? In Acts 21, 8 and 10, talks about Philip the evangelist, who had four daughters who prophesied. That's the same Philip, by the way, in Acts 6, one of the seven that was singled out. You remember there was a row between <laughs> the Hebrews and the Greek-speaking people how the, and the administration of the food? Because the church exploded. <coughs> Suddenly there were thousands of people overnight. What are you going to do with them? How are you going to handle this? And so there was, a, there was tension coming between. And the apostle says, look, it's, it's not fitting that we should deal with all of that because we want to give ourselves to the word of God in prayer. Look out seven men among you, full of the Holy Ghost and faith. And you appoint them to deal with all of this thing, to deal with the kitchen. There were seven, and Philip was one of them. But he went from the kitchen. He went from the pantry to the pulpit. He became a great evangelist. That's him you see in Acts 8. He remember, he went to Samaria and had a great revival there, and God spoke to him and says, go to Gaza, 100 miles away. 
And he went to Gaza, and that's where he found, you remember the Ethiopian eunuch? And he preached Christ out of Isaiah to him, got a water baptized, and then, whoosh, God just supernaturally took him. And here he is in Acts 21. 2 Timothy 4, 5, Timothy was a pastor, and Paul says, do the work on an evangelist. I know you're not an evangelist, you're a pastor, but do the work on an evangelist. The evangelist comes from a word. Euangelistes. Euangelistes. From EU meaning well, and angelos meaning a messenger. A preacher or a messenger of good news. An evangelist must be full of faith in the Holy Spirit. They must be well-versed in Scripture and have a sound gospel message to proclaim. An evangelist has a passion for men's souls. An evangelist is a good fisher of men. He loves to fish for men. And there's different ways to fish for men. When I was a young boy growing up, I had a cousin who was a fisherman, an angler. And I used to love going fishing with him. And sometimes it was bait fishing, sometimes it was fly fishing. There's an odd time he used dynamite, which I didn't get involved in. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to be involved in that. My mother said, have you done with that cousin David again? No, no, I wasn't near him. If you don't know what dynamite fishing is, you don't want to know. Poor old fish. But anyway, there's different methods, different ways. And a good evangelist will seek ways to reach the lost. Evangelist must have a good character. He must have a good lifestyle. He's a gift to the church. He builds the church up. An evangelist is sensitive and quick to sense where an unbeliever is at. You know, you could be talking to an unbeliever, and if you're not really a real evangelist, you might just talk and talk and talk and talk. But an evangelist is always looking for a little opening. Just a little opening, and then phew, he's right in there with a hook immediately. That's what an evangelist does. And of course, an evangelist is open to all kinds of personal evangelism, public evangelism, child evangelism, nursing home evangelism, beach evangelism, prison evangelism, mass evangelism, small group evangelism. Ah, there's women evangelists, there's children as evangelists. There's young Christopher. Christopher's preaching all the time in that school. Teacher, get to hear about him, he'll expel him. <laughs> but he has led some of his mates to Christ he's prayed with them the seniors can be evangelists so there's no age to be an evangelist and so these are gifts to the church to build up the church to encourage the church to teach the church to strengthen the church to help the church minister and then of course the pastor the Greek word is poimen, which means a shepherd, one who cares for the flock. Christ, of course, is the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. But we're just under shepherds, under him. In John chapter 10, which Jesus spoke of the shepherd, didn't he? John chapter 10, verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door 
is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things that he spoke to them. They were like, oh, sir, a bit dull. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You see, oftentimes in the wilderness, the sheep were, the shepherd would build maybe a little stone <coughs> circle, three quarters with a, an open part where the sheep could go in and then he would lie down at the opening and he would be the door and the sheep would only come out and in through him and so Jesus is telling them I'm the door I'm the one that you come in through that you go out through I am the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I am come that you might have life and that you may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. So sometimes a sheep owner would have lots of sheep, too much for one shepherd, so he had a number of sheep. He would pay them to be the shepherd. But because they were just paid, it was just a job. But then when the wolf came and danger came, they didn't care. They were going to get off. They didn't care about the sheep. It's just a job to them. But if you owned the sheep and you were their shepherd, it's not just a job to you. So this is what Jesus is saying. The one who's just, it's just a paid job trouble comes, they're gone. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I must bring and they will hear my voice. That's us, by the way, because he's talking to Jewish men here at this point. The other sheep is us. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. And that ties in with what Paul said in Ephesians, what we talked about the other week. How that God is going to head up all things in Christ and there'll be one new man in Christ, Jew and Gentile, saved together. And so, the shepherd. First of all, a pastor must come through the door of the shepherd of the sheep. In other words, he must be saved. You say, David, that's a given, surely. 
You would think so, but there's people in pulpits today who are not saved. They're not saved. They don't even believe in being born again. There's people in pulpits who doesn't even believe in the resurrection of Christ. Don't believe in the virgin birth. But they're in pulpits and churches as a shepherd. But they've never come through the shepherd. So they're not an under-shepherd. They're just a harling. A pastor must fulfill the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. We're almost finished, so let me just give you what the qualifications are. It even just doesn't say the word pastor here, but the qualifications are exactly the same. Spiritual leader of a church or leaders. 1 Timothy 3, here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart in being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil, who was full of pride. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And then it goes on to talk about deacons also. And then he writes to Pastor Titus, and uh, uh, he, he talks about the same thing regarding Titus. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So there are qualifications for the pastor to be able to hold. Seventh, he will, not, he will love the lambs as well as the sheep. <laughs> he will love the lambs as well as the sheep. He will love the little ones as well as the big ones. He will love the new believers as well as the old believers. Sheep will follow a good shepherd. He will not lord it over God's flock. He will call his sheep by name. He likes to interact with sheep. He will tend to their needs when they're hurting. He will lead his sheep into green pastures and feed them fresh food. He will not drive his sheep, but gently lead them. The sheep will recognize their shepherd. They will know his voice. And then finally, the teacher. The last some say the pastor teachers one, but I think they're separate. And I think they're separate because not all teachers are pastors. There's been some great teachers of God's word down through the ages who never were pastors. 
But I think it's very hard to be a pastor owner over any length of time if you can't teach the Word of God. Otherwise, God's sheep will starve. You've got to prepare and have fresh bread, fresh grass for the sheep. The word teacher, didasco, or didacticos, which means instructive, to learn, to teach, which is where we get didactic from, which means apt to teach. So a teacher is apt to teach. He's instructive. A teacher is one who instructs and by his teaching causes others to learn. That involves exposition, explanation, instruction and doctrine and other things. And I suppose it nearly goes without saying a teacher has got to be able to communicate what he's teaching in a way that you understand. If you don't understand it, then it's wasted, isn't it? Now, some things are not easy understood. Peter talked about the Apostle Paul who says some things not easy understood. Well, I haven't gotten a forensic mind like the Apostle Paul, so then I try to teach in a way, hopefully, hopefully, that you can understand. A teacher needs to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. A teacher needs the Holy Spirit to help him in his studies. A teacher must be able to communicate the word of God in a way that's understood. A teacher should be able to bring forth things new and old, treasures new and old from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. A teacher should be diligent in searching out the scriptures. A teacher must be balanced and not extreme in his teachings. So there's the five-fold ministry. The thumb is the apostle. The thumb is a strong part of your hand. It grips. It's got the strongest grip. The prophet is the pointing finger. The evangelist is the longest finger. It goes farther out than the rest. The pastor is the ring finger, the family finger. And the teacher is the little finger because it's the only one that's in your ear. <laughs> so these are the fivefold ministry gifts that Christ gives to the church for the specific purposes that we mentioned to build up the church in your most holy faith that you begin to understand and get a grip of God's word and know what you believe. Too many believers don't know what they believe. You need to know. Dig it out. Don't just take my word for it. Go to the book. Get other helps to help you and get it into you. Get it into your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.